Welcome to Bonus Features. Some may call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me this week is Max Booth III. Now, Max is one of the founders and editor of Perpetual Motion Machine Publishing that puts out everything from novels to short story collections to... Uh, publishing Dark Moon Digest, a quarterly collection of uh, short fiction and criticism, which I've been published in. I've had the privilege of working with Max on numerous occasions. He's the author of several novels, including Touch the Night, The Nightly Disease, and Carnivorous Lunar Activities. But the real reason I wanted to have Max on the show today is because he adapted one of his own novellas we need to do something into a screenplay and then shot it during the pandemic uh, with a crew of filmmakers up in Detroit. Now, We Need to Do Something is a great novella. If you haven't had the chance to pick it up, it's 150 pages of expertly crafted paranoia that perfectly captures the uh, kind of crushing despair that a lot of people have felt during the pandemic. Uh, it revolves around a suburban family who are trapped in their bathroom after a tornado rips through their neighborhood that morphs into, let's say, something else, something horrific and something totally unspeakable that I won't spoil at all. So Max joined us to talk about his experiences both adapting that into a screenplay and shooting a movie during the pandemic, and it's a real fascinating look at creating art during a horrible period in our planet's history. And then we also had Max pick a secret handshake movie, and he selected David Fincher's Zodiac, one of the great films that's ever been made in my lifetime that I think pairs quite well with our movie of the week, Cutter's Way. So, enough from me. Here's Max Booth III in a lengthy conversation talking everything from indie publishing to We Need to Do Something to Zodiac. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. I've watched Zodiac mill times in one month than anyone probably has. Oh, Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe Blake Howell has watched it in all times in one month now. But I hit three this month. That's a lot of Zodiac. That's like nine fucking owls of Zodiac. Which cut do you usually watch? Do you watch the, the theatrical or the director's one? It's only like five minutes longer. but A director's cut just because that's what I own. Oh, okay. I don't know what difference there is exactly in the cuts. I don't know what is extra material. Do you? Um, I know the radio transition. That's the main one that I remember. You know, in the middle where it basically is like a black screen and it's just nothing but um, almost like song audio the entire yeah. time. Uh, it's, like a, it's like an intermission in the movie. Yeah, exactly. But that's the only one 
that's the main difference that I know. Yeah. Outside of that, uh, I can't remember because I've watched both cuts now. I've probably seen this movie 50 times or so. Like, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, that, those, that's the main difference I can remember. Because the rest is just like little detail stuff that he mm-hmm. kind of threw in there. Um, yeah. So, but I guess uh, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, was we need to do something. Like, yeah. Um, because you've had, I don't want to put it as quite the pandemic, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Life's been good until Max in 2020. <laughs> Max did okay during the pandemic because you you wrote the I guess we'd call it a novella, right? Yeah, yeah. And then so oh man, the cops are coming for me. Okay. Uh, but uh, you wrote it during the pandemic, and then you no, no, you didn't. No, I just it just happened that I am obsessed with uh, one location stories, and it just happened to uh, benefit from that. Okay, I just I just had that laying around, not sure what to do with it, and then I thought, oh, I might lose my job. I need a way to uh, make some fast money, so I just randomly put the book out like on a Saturday night, without doing any pre-promotion. Okay, and somehow that's become my uh, best-selling book. Oh wow. Yeah. So, and then you turned it into a screenplay during the pandemic? Was that like, were you optioned to do it first or was it? No. So it's it's strange how this uh, book slash screenplay came about. I wrote it in the beginning of 2019 as a screenplay because a friend of mine who also lives in Austin, he has written some screenplays. He's gotten some things produced with like uh, Amazon and Blumhouse. And he was working with this one indie company and he told me, you need to begin writing screenplays. They all look, they all hungry for new screenplays. So I said, okay. And I wrote this because I was thinking about it anyway. And uh, we sent it to the company and they know, they did not respond. So it just kind of sat around collecting dust until I eventually decided, well, I, I think this is a pretty good story. So I'm just going to rewrite it as a book and see what happens that way. So I rewrote it as the novella. I sat on it a few months until I decided, fuck it, I'm not going to keep shopping this around to rejections. So I'm just going to put it out myself and see what happens. And I did that. And it was around that time that I got a film and TV manager named Brian Lewis. And I got connected with him because a company was interested in a different book of mine called Touch the Night. And they were asking me questions that I uh, did not know how to answer. So my friend, uh, Josh Mammelman, who wrote the book uh, Build Box, which was quite the uh, hit with Netflix, he connected me with his film and TV manager and we got together I became his client and uh, he was helping me with touch the night. And after I put out, we need to do something. I sent it to him saying, Hey, you should take a look at this. Maybe we could do something with it. He read it, loved it. Then uh, he had me go back and rewrite it as a screenplay again, because the original screenplay was vastly different from what the book came out to be. And we, uh, went through multiple drafts while I would write something, send it to him. He would give me some notes, 
new draft. And then he said, okay, I'm going to shop this around and see if we can get anyone interested in it. And he sent it to Atlas Industries in Detroit. They've had experience in the past. I guess that Atlas is doing some stuff of Josh's as well. So they already knew each other. And it just happened that the the co-owner of Atlas was looking to also direct a movie. And this seemed like a really easy movie to shoot during COVID time since it takes place in a bathroom and things just kind of came together. It was really lucky, everything that happened. I don't, I mean, we, I met Sean King O'Grady, who's the director and the producer of Atlas on Zoom in July. And we began filming by the end of September. So like that shit does not happen that fast. No, because that's what was crazy is because yeah. you know you and I follow each other and interact quite a bit on Twitter, and I saw you basically being like, "Well, getting in the car and going to Detroit to shoot a movie," and I was like, "What the fuck?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how was it like being on a movie set during a pandemic? I mean, not. It's pretty cool. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm scalable, <laughs> but also it was really a claustrophobic. So the set was built on a sound stage that Atlas owns. So we have this bathroom and there's a, those walls around the whole bathroom that you could take in and take out to put a camera on any side of the bathroom. But at any time the, the side, the camera is not on, we have walls up obviously so we couldn't have like crew hanging out in the bathroom. So we had these tiny ass hallways around the bathroom that was really a tight spaced and sweaty and hot. We couldn't have the AC on at all because it would make too much fucking noise. And then you have COVID restrictions. So we all have a mask on. We have the mask on and we also have a face shield on as well. And it's just you're sweating balls. Everything's foggy, especially if you have glasses like I do. And you try not to get close to anybody, but it's pretty much impossible. And plus, <laughs> everybody's really uh, paranoid about getting the cast sick because if we have maybe five people on the cast, but if one of them gets sick, the movie's fucked. Yeah. Everything's ruined. So it's a lot of, oh, hi, don't get close to me. I don't want to... <laughs> cough on you or anything so it was a lot of nervousness and just paranoia about things possibly going wrong because i i mean this is the only time i've been on a movie set but i imagine like any other set on any other ill things will go wrong all the time but it doesn't mean the end of production like this would have yeah but you didn't tom cruise anybody right no, I, I had no, I don't have that type of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you had quite the, the cast for this movie too, because like Pat Healy's in it and like, uh, yeah. he's playing the dad, right? Now he's playing the boy. He's, he's, on oh. his knee, he's on his knees the whole time. It's really experimental. <laughs> wow. That's, does he scream about poop a lot? Because there's a lot of poop talks in the book. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he plays the dad. Uh, he's excellent. I love Pat. Uh, one of my favorite movies to watch when I was working a night shift at a hotel was that T West, or was it Ty West movie, The Inkeepers? Yeah. Yeah, that movie is a strange thing to watch while working a night shift at a hotel. And I'd imagine. <laughs> Pat is just so fucking great in that. Plus, 
uh, cheap thrills and Magnolia and anything else he's been in. He always hits it, I think. Yeah. No, he's terrific. It was, I read the book after the movie and stuff uh, was announced. So I basically had him in my head as yeah. the dad while I was watching it and, or like reading it. And I was just like, Oh, okay. This is going to be fucking awesome. Because <laughs> dad is nuts in the book, at least. <laughs> He's nuts in the, the movie as well. I spent a lot of my time uh, above the set because they own pretty much the whole building. Well, not the whole building, but they rent out. They own this the uh, soundstage, which is uh, like a garage. And they own like one floor of this giant building. And up there, they have a mini movie theater where they, uh, they, they were editing the movie each day. So they would take the previous footage and edit all day. And I would hang out with the, uh, the editor they have, uh, Shane Patrick Field. And him and I became pretty good friends. But I would sit up there and we would just kind of go over everything and just the laugh all asses off at the, sh- the, the performances Pat would give because so much of it is just almost Nick Cage levels of lunacy. It's, yeah. yeah, like, I mean, going into it, we were like, this is a Mandy performance, and he really gives that sometimes. Well, I mean, the, it's kind of all there. Like you said, I don't know how different the screenplay is from the book itself, as you kind of mentioned, but I mean, like, even early on in it, when he's going on his, like, racist tirades about, like, 9-11 and explaining to the kid, like, what's it like? Like, I was trying to imagine... um Pat Healy delivering this dialogue, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that." that <laughs> I will say a lot of the uh, racist rants did not make the final draft. Well, that's probably for the best. Probably. <laughs> He's still pretty much an asshole, though, even without the random nine eleven uh, rants. See, but what's interesting is that. Uh, I'm glad that I know now that the book was written before the pandemic because it lines up. I don't know. That type of stuff was what I was thinking about while reading it was the fact that like how it grabs a certain strain of paranoia as the the book continues to like escalate. Um, And like all of the racist stuff felt like, some of the reactions that we had like during COVID while we were dealing with it is like all of a sudden, you know, you had Trump and assholes like that, which it, yeah. it felt like the dad would probably vote for Trump. Um, Absolutely. Like 100%. But like, <laughs> uh, but it felt not too far removed when he's like talking about towel heads and 9-11 and blah, blah, blah. It felt like an, an interesting parallel to when all of a sudden you had Trump talking about China virus and uh, inciting this kind of like racist rhetoric, like around, you know, COVID itself, um, which made it, I don't know, reading it now just made it that much more, I hate saying timely, but it is. It is strange how all this lined up. Most people do think I wrote it during COVID just because of the self-isolation stuff in it but even the director thought i wrote it during covid and he didn't know until after we wrapped and we were having uh dinner one day and he uh, mentioned it and i said no that's not true sean what are you talking about yeah like it just but it's pretty pretty incredible stuff i can't wait to see the movie like i'm i yeah 
it, it, especially since I know now that you guys were editing, like, as it was rolling out, that's like some Soderbergh shit. It was great. I, uh, uh, Shane and I kept talking about how it would have been so cool if we could have gotten someone to, like, follow us around with a camera for some BTS stuff. Just, like, if you walk up these stills, they'll editing the movie that is being filmed right now. And, like, they would bring up tapes and go, okay, check this out. Does this match the stuff that you guys will doing, or do we need to reshoot it a different way? And sometimes they would bring uh, Shane and I down to watch something, and they would go, "Okay, how does this match? Should we have them do it a different way?" And it was cool to be like, "Actually, can you have Pat be a bit uh, angry when he says that line? Like almost Weevil suddenly directing it for just a moment? It was pretty uh, badass. Like most directors, I think, would not." have that type of i don't know faithful maybe they just want to give enough of a shit to get the writer involved like that because i've always filled things about like okay once you write the screenplay no one wants to talk to you anymore and this was not my experience at all yeah i mean that's the general like wisdom let's say is that like yeah. the writer basically writes it and then it's not your baby anymore it's just they will do with it what they please yeah, it was it was nuts. I mean, some days Sean and I would get together after we uh, wrapped for the day and we would talk about scenes coming up and I would go back to my hotel room and crank out a new draft like overnight to fix upcoming issues that might happen. It was pretty, yeah. uh, it was nice. It, I don't know if that's ever going to happen again the way it did, but I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Like I said, you had quite the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Max did pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, does the movie leave the bathroom? Because the book does, ever like so in, briefly. Like in flashback stuff? Yeah, yeah. we have flashback stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm okay. I think I'm okay with saying that because some of the uh, promo photos they released, like with a uh, – I don't know the fucking websites. I don't know what they'll call it. Well, when it was on Hollywood Reporter, yeah. like a shot of the main two girls walking uh, on the street. So yeah, yeah we have flash. Yeah. So I wondered if that that was it, but I also didn't know if that was from like another movie, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, we do uh, leave the bathroom a few, fill uh, a few scenes. Those were all shot like in the last two or three days. It was an eighteen-day shoot combined. Okay, yeah, because that was the one part reading the book, like when it does the first flashback, I, I like think I said out loud, oh, holy shit, this actually leaves the bathroom. Weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there's an element, um, the story that it reminds me of a lot uh, is the Stephen King story, Survivor Type. Like how yeah. you're basically stuck on the island with this guy as he, well, eats himself. Now, there's no eating of yourself in this in this. Uh, story but I did like how you're you're essentially stuck with these individuals as they decide how and if they even want to survive this long yeah that's maybe why I love books and movies that take place in one setting like this when someone is trapped in something just so we can see how someone's mind kind of travels into trying to decide on what the fuck to exactly do like i love watching kill tilts interact and like 
try to guess what's going on, even if they look completely wrong, it's still fun just to see them try to investigate something. Yeah. It's, it's real interesting. I, I love the way the book is structured. So again, can't wait to see the actual movie. <laughs> Thank you. I, uh, I've seen a lot of cuts at this point. Uh, right now, we'll like getting the music finished and the uh, final sound editing. And then I think it's fucking done and we just have to get someone to buy it. <laughs> yeah, or play festivals or something. Yeah. I, festivals exist. <laughs> yeah, I am uh, really confused on how that's going to go. What do you what do you think is going to happen with Fest? Well, I mean, we have Sundance next week. Yeah. And speaking uh personally, well, because this episode will literally air in the middle of Sundance while but I mean me and Martin, uh one of the co-hosts of the show, um, we're actually doing Sundance and we're gonna do a Sundance episode and everything because we're intrigued too, as two guys who have basically, you know, spent quite a few years writing about movies and going to festivals and stuff is like, we want to see kind of like you just asked, like, what, what, what is yeah. that? Like, because I've done, uh, I did Chattanooga, which was mm-hmm. online, which felt like the first one, you know, that really kind of tackled, cause that was in the middle of COVID like smack dab. Um, I did one of them, but now I can't think of the goddamn name of it. The only thing I can recall is they played that awesome movie about the the lady who's like in love with a fucking silicus, right? What is that Chattanooga. called? I think that's Chattanooga. Because okay. they, what, they, what's that, that movie Jumbo. called? Jumbo. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Where she falls in love with the carnival lot ride. What yeah. an incredible film that one is. Yeah. But uh, because that played Chattanooga and then you had Salem. It might have played at Salem, but I can't remember. I saw that when it played at Sundance last year. Um, So that one's been unfortunately hamstrung a little bit because of COVID. It's one of the ones that like played at a festival and then was kind of relegated to playing these online fests. And then I think dark star bought it so it'll actually come out okay um but they did but i did chattanooga i didn't do salem but that's an online one that they did i did some of fantastic fest although fantastic fest was weird this year or last year um i keep saying it like we're still in 2020 because it feels that way seems that way yeah but it's like (laughs) but fantastic fest was all free which was was odd yeah it was like it had a very abridged lineup, but it was a but the majority of it was free online on their Alamo on demand platform. Mm. And then they did a couple live screenings. Like I know they did Possessor and the oh the Jim Cummings one, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Like yeah. they played that in a couple theaters here in Austin, but for the majority of it was just online, like watching it in like the the uh, virtual screening rooms in Alamo on demand, but like, but all three of those are, let's, I mean, be honest, like they're smaller genre festivals, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I know Tiff did some online stuff, but I didn't do anything there, but Sundance is like, it's, it's the full lineup. 
Like it's, and it's all online. I know they're doing satellite locations like AFS here in Austin is doing screenings, but like uh, the majority of the stuff, like we got a badge for Sundance and, and me and Martin kind of got together and zoomed and, and did the schedule together. And we were like going through and picking the movies for each day. And it was like, you got a badge and then you just hit a button for which screening you want to send. And it's like, you're registered, you're there. And I'm like, that's it. That's nice. This seems too easy. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, we, but we're registered for like 35 films or something to watch. Wow. So I, I briefly talked about this with uh, the director, uh, Sean, but we didn't get too much into it. I think he was a little nervous about lose house possibly when all these uh, festivals only go online, like possibly losing like the audience excitement that you usually get that some like distributors kind of look full. I mean, yeah. I don't know anything about this. What do you think? Um, I think it's a double-edged sword um, because I don't think, I think it's going to be difficult to build buzz for any of these smaller indie movies that would typically play festivals in general because I think what COVID uh, putting festivals online is doing is that it's really showing just how niche of that an audience that is to begin with yeah. um, because you don't have the real time interaction with it and stuff. I wonder how many normal folks, you know, who say would like take off work for a week and go to fantastic fest right. you know, or go to South by or, or, or go to Toronto or what have you. I wonder how many people are actually doing that to uh, because that's, not only with critics, but that's where a lot of your buzz comes from is people coming out of screenings, tweeting about it instantly. Yeah. Now, I, I don't see the same sort of group reaction outside of, you know, your normal pockets on film Twitter or whatnot um, that I would during like normal fests when they were in person. So I do think he's not wrong. Yeah. Like there's, there's a bit of that, that expectation or hype let's say like that's hamstrung by it a bit yeah um, but at the same time COVID is the great like it's weird to say but it's almost like the great equalizer here like if you want to go to Sundance like all of a sudden a now badge, you can yeah a, a badge that used to be $1,200 before like the fucking uh trip and hotel and all the expenses all that shit like it's 350 bucks and you get yeah. all of Sundance online. And it's, yeah. if you want to, you can do it. You, I just wonder how many folks, like normal folks who work like nine to fives and what have you are actually doing that, you know? So, oh, no, no granted, I don't, I don't know if Sundance is the best example here, but like maybe I think South by might be the one that reveals it even more because South by, I mean, just speaking as somebody who like lives in Austin, it's such a vacation destination for some people, especially yeah. since it was like positioned right in the middle of spring break. So you mm -hmm. had people who literally would just go to South by as their vacation. I know, man. Um, my hotel's right outside uh, the hotel I used to look at. I need to remember to say it that way now. Uh, it's right outside of this, uh, San Antonio, but anytime South by happened, hotels will be booked all the way by me. 
I mean, yeah. it was fucking nuts. Yeah. Because if you could save a couple bucks and just commute in or whatever, like you would mm-hmm. totally do it because it's so expensive. But again, I wonder now distributor wise, I mean, knowing a few folks who work in distribution, like they're still doing it. Like yeah. one of my best friends works in it. And like, we talk, you know, every day. And he was telling me about how like, he has 50 movies scheduled for Sundance because Damn. he has to do it. Yeah. So like I, if he's worried about it getting purchased, I wouldn't. I, wouldn't. I don't think so. I don't think he is. I think we, I think I just brought up, what do you think festivals will be like when they only go online? And that's, that's, that was kind of his response. As far as someone like buying the movie itself. I mean, I don't think he is really uh, concerned about that right now. I mean, I think everybody's pretty confident in the, the quality of the movie at least. And yeah. I'm not like hands on with any of this shit, obviously, but sometimes him and I talk. And like last week, he was uh, finishing up a, uh, a sales pitch video to show people who are interested because we have gotten like companies reaching out since the uh, announcement saying, hey, we want to see what this is. So I, I'm pretty sure someone is going to pick it up. Well, and the one good thing, again, to kind of go back to the whole idea of like the great equalizer is that. Places need content. Like they, like you, if you have a finished movie and it has recognizable actors and it has a solid hook and it's cheap, which it sounds like uh, we need to do something is like, yeah. uh, they'll buy it because they need to fill platforms, you know? So, yeah. I mean, not much was made in 2020. I don't think. Exactly. I, I mean, mean, when, when I was, when we were filming this, uh, also in Detroit, uh, Steven Sutherland was filming that movie he just wrapped, but like they were fucking delayed like two weeks suddenly because they had some COVID positives. Yeah. And that was happening at the same time we were filming and it was really like scary. <laughs> it was like, oh shit. Yeah. If they can get shut down, we can easily get shut down. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's crazy. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how all of this shapes up over the next year because like it's because at the same time you know it will probably be great for little movies that got uh completed during covid how many few that there are mm-hmm. but it but i just saw like comicbook.com or some one of those shitty sites like just tweeted out black widow probably will be delayed again and you're just like yeah no shit man <laughs> and also that's okay <laughs> yeah, who fucking cares like <laughs> I'll spend all of my time watching Blu-rays of like old films and then like whatever little weird things like pop up on like Shudder or uh, Amazon or or Netflix or something because I'm like, this is the time for that type of stuff to shine. Like, you know, fuck this blockbuster bullshit. I mean, Wonder Woman 84 kind of showed what the... I didn't watch that. (laughs) What what happens when you get instant reactions to some of these things too, where everybody has access to it as opposed to going to the theater. Suddenly the the shine is no longer there. (laughs) I'm not like the the biggest fan of superhero movies, but like it's fun. It is right, man. Like how instant the judgment is when something is streaming because I kind of thought that new one woman movie, just like from the postal kind of looked like it might be okay. <laughs> and then like I woke up and it, it was like the number one trending thing on Twitter. Like this movie is dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was <crashed>. embarrassing. <laughs> it's weird. It's like, I'm one of the few people who actually liked it 
and like watching people thrash it like mercilessly. Cause I'm like you, like pretty almost notoriously on record as not liking these superhero films. But like, so when I watched it and I like enjoyed it, I was like, Oh, that's neat. Whatever. (laughs) But then everybody's just like ripping at a new asshole. And I'm like, Oh shit guys. Like (laughs) you all seem mad. (laughs) Like uh, another little example that is kind of similar, but not uh, that WandaVision came out and the previews looked pretty good. So I checked it out and I thought, yeah, this is pretty good. I have no uh, knowledge, knowledge of who these uh, kills are at all. And yeah. to see everybody on social media, like coming up with these ideas of what could be happening. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about, but the show seems okay. Yeah. It's like, I haven't watched any of it yet because I frankly just do not care one, like what yeah. I know about it. But it's like, I see all these people writing these like think pieces and they're like, I guess I'll somebody call it Lynchian. And I gotta be like, I, I gotta be honest. I was like, you know what? I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> but let's yeah. talk about Zodiac. Zodiac, a movie with uh, pretty much the whole cast is now in the fucking MCU. Yep, you have the Hulk, you have Iron Man, and you have who the fucking Jillian Hall play Steve. Yeah, yeah, that's it in the in the the Spider Man film. So yeah, and I I had that realization watching it today too, as I was like, all these fuckers are in Marvel movies. I didn't realize it until my uh, stepkid walked into the room and recognized all the actors, and he got really into the movie. Wow, <laughs> new fan. He likes <laughs> Zodiac. <laughs> He's twelve. <laughs> But why, why did you pick this one? Like, cause this was one of two movies you kind of threw out there and I went with it um, because for me, it lines up with the movie of the week that uh, this episode's gonna kind of air during, but I want to hear your, your take on it. Yeah, uh, it's strange. I feel just, it feels like comfort food to me. It's a movie I always watch. I watch it like at, on my birthday every year, and it's just really soothing. I'm not that interested in the Zodiac stuff as I am in just like watching newspaper guys get obsessed with something. And it has that same vibe as like all the president's men, just some guys in suits in an office talking and getting frantic and running around and writing notes. I just really like that. And I don't know why I do. I wonder if it's the, it's the process, right? I think that's the thing that I get wrapped up in every time I watch it is that it's one of the most idiosyncratic process movies ever made to where like the killing stop, what, 30 minutes into this three-hour movie, roughly 30 to Something like that. Somewhere in there. Isn't the, the taxi cab killing the last one? Yeah, the taxi cab killing. Well, and then you have the one with the where the woman escapes, where he threatens to throw her baby out. That's the last, like, let's say traditional, almost suspense uh, set piece for at least two hours because the next one you really get is when Robert Graysmith goes to um, what's his name's house. The guy with the movie posters. 
Rick Marshall. Yeah, yeah, Rick Marshall. And when yeah. he goes into the basement and everything, like that's the the next scary scene. The rest is just like you said, it's guys investigating and getting caught up in like what um what it takes to essentially piece a story together. But that's maybe why, I mean, if I were to throw uh, any kind of motivation or, or interest on you, maybe that's it is maybe you, you as a writer are interested in how guys piece a story together. I think that is it. Also, when I was watching it this time, it kind of hit me in the second half of the movie, once a Gray Smith is really trying to fucking investigate this so well, how many dead end he dead ends he keeps running into just to stop and begin again and follow something else. It really much kind of like fucking symbolizes the process of writing anything. How many times do you begin writing a piece only to get halfway done? And then realize, oh no, I've approached this the wrong way. I have to begin again now. It's yeah. fairly similar, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's also sort of how like Gray Smith even evolves as a character too, to where he literally goes from this guy who's just almost on the periphery the entire time as, mm -hmm. as like a creative artist. Is that you know the the first bit of. Uh, or I guess the first creation he kind of throws out there are these cartoons to his editor, who's John Getz from the fly. And it took me this long to realize that it's, it's the, the shitty boyfriend from the fly. Who's like the head editor of um, the San Francisco Chronicle in this. I, I did not know that. Yeah. And he all, well, and it makes sense because he plays Zuckerberg's lawyer in uh, social network. So he obviously okay. has like a solid, relationship yeah. with Fincher um but like you know he throws these cartoons out and <laughs> John Ketch just goes horrid horrid not so horrid horrid <laughs> all right let's go with not so horrid can you can you punch this up for me real quick and he you know basically gets involved in the story by just being in the the right place at the wrong time almost and then becoming obsessed with it to where by the end he's the driving force he's yeah. the one who's actually coming up with the ideas and like bouncing things off of dave toski and um uh what's uh, uh paul avery yeah. here and there uh because you know nobody else gives a shit but it kind of to go off of your point it's almost about how like when you you finally get that one strand of inspiration and it drives you like long, like hard enough, you mm -hmm. can't give it up, sometimes to a detriment. Yeah, I can relate to that, man. I'm doing this book right now that takes place in the Los Alamos in the 1950s, and I've definitely gone a bit nuts with the research. I have a read like every issue of the local newspaper that was uh, put out in the year the book is being written. I've uh, been buying TV guides that were issued out when the book is taking place. I'm not sure why, but <laughs> it, it's fun. I don't know what I'm doing with this information exactly, but I feel like if I just crack this, this puzzle that is, doesn't even exist, then the book is going to be just right. So I get that. I also think there's something just thrilling about like investigating almost a conspiracy like have you ever like just 
fallen upon something like on the internet and just kept digging in deeper and deeper and finding like clues and trying to piece something together. I mean, it's what the internet was made for. Yeah. Oh, I'm actually a secret QAnon guy. Hell yeah. I have some <laughs> stuff to talk to you about. I have to listen. <laughs> Pizzagate. That would, that's my Zodiac. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a while back, I was uh, contacted by this awful website to write stuff for them. It's one of those websites where you rank things and you like write like, oh, this is what you'll fucking Zodiac means if you will in Stranger Things. It's a bad website and I quit immediately after like a month. hated it uh, but i needed money so i said okay i'll do a piece for you and they assigned me an idea and the idea was basically about this uh anti-scientology uh organization that basically it turned out they were secretly somehow funded by scientologists it was like this big fucking scam and they wanted me to write something about it that was the only guideline they gave me so i spent like two days just looking into all the information available online about this organization and i found this telephone number on the uh, wayback machine from a website they had listed like 15 years ago and i thought i'm gonna call this number and see what happens because supposedly it no longer existed and i called them and it rained like fucking 10 times and then gave me a voice message for like uh, some type of health insurance. So it was obviously no longer valid. And uh, later that day, I, I thought I'm gonna call it again just so I can jot down what it said so I could write about it. And it gave me a message for something completely different, which was uh, selling like used vehicles. It was really odd. I thought, well, this is strange. So I waited and called back and somebody answered the phone <laughs> and it was someone selling something else. I forget what. And I was just like, I apologize for like bugging you, but this telephone number used to be listed for this uh, Scientology website. So I was just uh, investigating. And he just paused for a long time and then just said, are you interested in Scientology? And I was like, what? Come <laughs> 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 for. <laughs> he began like defending it and saying how he also has been really interested in it. And like, he has family members who have done it and they have good lives. And I realized, holy shit, I'm speaking to fucking Scientologists right now. And that phone number was still legit. And that's the, the, the fill this, the investigation went, but I, like afterwards, I kept thinking, man, they know I'm onto them now. I got super paranoid. I was like, they're going to track me down and kill me. I don't know why. <laughs> That's where my brain went because I've seen Zodiac a hundred times. <laughs> so I emailed the website. I was like, I'm going to need some more time on this because I have cracked something. And they were like, we just want you to write a 500 gold listicle. You have taken this way too, <laughs> way too extreme. But yeah, that's my thing. Yeah. I thought your story was going to end with, and I realized it was Tom Cruise. <laughs> I would have been okay with that. <laughs> You're just like, oh, hey, this is weird. Do you want to talk about Scientology or like other stuff, like Mission Impossible movies? <laughs> talk about Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> so did you see Zodiac when it came out in theaters? 
No. Uh, oh. It came out in 2007, and that was a strange year for me because I was uh, a teenager living in a hotel with my mom and dad cut off from society, so I didn't see any movies that came out then. But I don't know how I got on to the Zodiac Trail. I don't know how old I was. But eventually I did, and I loved it. But now, like, looking back at the year 2007, I don't have the list in front of me now, but that was a crazy year of film movies because didn't we also have No Country and uh, There Will Be Blood that came out in the same year? That's fucking nuts. Yeah, There Will Be Blood, No Country, uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the California Ford. Yeah. You know, like, that that year, because that was the first year after I was out of college and so I just saw everything mm-hmm. uh, because I was bored and working a shitty job. But like, yeah, that, that was one of those like, Oh, this might be one of the best years for movies since I've been alive. Years. <laughs> like, yeah. I, uh, I'm jealous. I didn't get to like see them as they came out, but I mean, it's cool that we can still watch them anytime we want assuming we own the physical media and don't rely on streaming websites to hold them hostage yeah well i watched it on prime today so this one's at least readily available although i agree with you with like jesse james sometimes it's hard to see um no country is usually readily available but like i don't know about there will be blood either way i agree with you on the physical media front mostly because like I think you can only see the theatrical cut on streaming mostly mm-hmm. and you have to either pay or buy it, which I'll, I never buy movies streaming. I just buy the, the just buy the disc. It, yeah. it annoys me that like streaming websites have, have, they haven't like included behind the scenes stuff yet, which is like one of the, the coolest things about physical media is all the bonus features and what, streaming website besides uh, the Criterion channel really embraces yeah. that. Yeah, because, I mean, not even, like, Shudder and stuff includes it, and that's... I mean, I enjoy stuff on Shudder, and I like how niche it is, but, like, yeah, I wish there was more going into, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff on, like, the, you know, the Halloween movies. And yeah, stuff. and even, like, co- uh, commentaries that will recruit it, how difficult would that be to put them on? Well, I think that's... Um, possibly part of the appeal of like say uh, like the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs being unshuttered is because you at least get like a level of commentary that goes along with the movie there's something novel about that Mm -hmm. and I think that's why it's kind of landed with uh, horror fans so well Um, and he's seen kind of a resurgence uh, is because it's, I, on that, at least to me, that's the closest thing you get to like a film commentary. Yeah, it's awesome what he does because it brings like the film commentary to everybody. It's the only time I'll accept live tweeting of a movie. Only yeah. Time. Well, yeah, because that one, at least you have breaks and stuff. And like, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's almost structured to cater to that. Yeah, it becomes like a community event. It's, it's pretty cool. Well, and also, like, I've seen Fan- Phantasm nine bazillion times, so it's like, yeah. you know, if you tweet during it, I'm, I'm not going to be that upset. <laughs> Most of these movies we've already seen, and also, 
they'll still available like usually the movies will not like launching at the time of this happening so the odds of us having seen them be feels pretty uh, big especially if you're someone who's even subscribed to that channel yeah there's only a few that he's done like when he did scare package mm-hmm. um i thought that that was kind of interesting because nobody had really seen it unless you like had watched it on shutter like most people hadn't watched it at that point mm-hmm. and then like it's an older movie but like i wonder how many people had actually seen um dial code santa claus uh, before he actually did it on Shutter too, because like I saw it at Fantastic Fest, and like I have it on the Vinegar Syndrome disc, but like that's a pretty obscure fucking thing. <laughs> yeah, I only saw it uh, last month. I didn't watch the uh, the commentary track one, but yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah, I, that was that was fun. It's the craziest version of Home Alone. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, so which. In Zodiac, I, I did wonder this today while rewatching it, is which character do you latch on to the most? Out of the main three, let's say, out of Gray Smith, Avery, and, and Toski. Because mine almost changes every time. I don't know. I, I, I love just the chemistry that Gray Smith has with both of them. So maybe yeah. I have to say Gray Smith because I think the movie is at its best when he is interacting with one of them. Yeah. I'm a big Dave Toski enthusiast. Like I, I was craving animal crackles. Yeah. Well, and I just, I like how he is pragmatic to a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like he, I love how professional, he almost feels like a Michael Mann character at times because like, you know, there's that awesome moment like when he, you know, they bring Dirty Harry and they do a San Francisco police department screening. Yeah. And someone afterwards is like, you know, he's talking to Gray Smith outside of the theater and somebody's exiting and they're like, oh, great movie, Dave. And he looks at it and he goes, yeah, I guess so much for due process, right? And it's like, <laughs> you can't even like Dirty Harry because it breaks the rules of being a cop, which I also found interesting because like, they go out of their way to point out that bullet and like Steve McQueen, like took stuff from him. Like he was yeah. one of the original like movie cops, you know, before Randy Jurgensen and stuff. Yeah. I think he, uh, Stephen Queen, uh, Stephen Queen, like based the way he has his gun upside down yeah. off of him. I do wish, I love how he is in the movie, but like reading about how he was in real life, I wish they had made him a bit more egotistical like he was in real life because we get a hint of it when we find out that he was fucking writing fake fan mail about himself to the Chronicle. Right. It's so funny. (laughs) It's such a weird... It's such a weird moment too, because that comes out of left field too. I always forget about it, even when I, even though I've rewatched it a million times. Is like they have that entire like character turning point for him to where it's like he gets in trouble and investigated by Internal Affairs because they think he was penning like false Zodiac letters and stuff. And yeah, yeah it turns out like his wife has to explain it to Graysmith. She's like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, he was a character in his column, and then, like, he wrote a couple letters, and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah, I was reading about that uh, at some point today, and 
he was just he wasn't telling the dude who was uh, at the chronicle that it was him he was just writing these things just bragging about how good of a cop this this, this Tosky fellow was it's just so odd but if you also like read like interviews about him and stuff like uh who the fuck plays him in the movie the name is yeah ruffalo like there's a thing i was reading well he said he was talking to him to prepare for the movie and he could remember every like outfit he had in any moment that they would discuss he would be like yeah i had i was reeling this at this time he's really obsessed with his own image and i i find that really amusing i think there's some of that i wonder if that's a, a weird fincher touch too to where fincher brings it out visually because mm-hmm. like if you watch him dress and stuff like i like that you bring up the outfits is because he's always wearing those bow ties and like his shirts are always so crisp and like he he's fashionable in a way that like the other cops around him aren't and it feels like visual cues that fincher's basically using to bring it out as opposed to like uh like zeroing in on or having him like monologue about like how great yeah. he is or anything it's like you just kind of look at him and you're like this guy's fucking there's something weird about him like eccentric like he he talks this weird way he's always uh he's always stealing food he won't pay for his own food for some reason yeah like he's always (laughs) eating anthony edwards anthony edwards in one of the great supporting roles in any fincher movie of all time like i love him in this film like just his weird uh the way that he is cool playing second fiddle to Toski the entire time is so great. Yeah. Uh, you can eat those fries. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Or like, uh, he has those great, he, he has one of the moments in the movie that cracked me up the most, because I think one of the, the, the more underrated elements of Zodiac is how funny it is. Absolutely. Um, but like when he's talking to, uh, uh, Belli, the the uh, yeah the attorney uh, played by Brian Cox. Cox Brian Cox is so fucking funny in this. But when <laughs> Brian Cox is talking about how you know the Zodiac called his house and talked to his housekeeper, and he just goes, "Well, he, he didn't leave a number." And Anthony Andrews just goes, "Yeah, he's crafty like that." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Zodiac is the really funny. There's a scene. There was a line in it that cracks me up, and it's still one of the most horrific scenes in the movie. The uh, the lakeside stabbings, but when the the lady goes to like, "Do you need help?" He's a sociology major, and the boyfriend goes, "Pre-law, actually." <laughs> it's so funny, and it says so much about these skeletons too that they just don't really know each other at yeah. all. There's and there's a lot of weird little asides like that and like the since uh, we're on the comedy like the visual gag of when Avery and Grace Smith go out drinking together for the first time yeah. and like they're just talking and he just stops he goes this cannot be ignored any longer <laughs> and he points that giant blue drink he goes yeah. what is that he goes oh it's an aqua velva just like so. <laughs> So naturally, almost, what the fuck are you talking about? And then it, the hard cut to the table after he lets Avery taste it, and they're just sitting at a table, and it's just nothing but empty, empty glasses. glasses. <laughs> I'll tell you, man, I've had three of those now tonight. They uh, feel pretty okay. Yeah. I yeah, can see. a picture of the blue Caraco, and I was like. Yeah, it's empty now. 
Oh dear. What do they taste like? I've never had one, I have to admit. Sprite. Yeah. It tastes like Sprite because most of it is Sprite. I mean, it's like a little bit of gin, a little bit of vodka, some of that blue shit that I keep forgetting the name of, and then you just fill the glass up with Sprite. Pretty yeah. good. It makes your mouth feel pretty sticky, though. Yeah. That yeah. sounds like a, a drink that Graysmith would drink, though, based on how his character is in the movie, because he's yeah. like a, a, a goody two-shoes. Like, you couldn't see him drinking, like, hard whiskey, you know? No, not at all. Like, like he's going to drink this fruity thing that doesn't, that doesn't taste like alcohol, frankly. It tastes like Sprite. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a kids drink and kids drinks are pretty damn good and you can you can see how they could go through so many at once because it doesn't taste like booze at all yeah well and especially paul avery he as he's just fucking hoovering coke the entire time it's it's strange man reading about that guy in real life and seeing like how he is in the movie like have you read much about him no that really wasn't how he ended up being like he kind of but continued on after the Zodiac. He went to a different newspaper. He fucking wrote a book about the Patty Hulsta kidnapping. Like he, uh, he uh, tried like, even as in the year that he was dying, I think he was trying to get this one Filson uh, released from prison because he was convicted and he was obviously innocent. I mean, yeah. It's really different from what's in the movie, but like, whatever, it's a movie. It's not supposed to be completely true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also, like, I think it's interesting to have Robert Downey Jr., of all people, play this guy who succumbs to addiction. Yeah. uh, Because you get to see Downey. Because this is, I mean, Downey at this point is what? Is he two Iron or he's just one Iron Man movie in, right? Because the first Iron Man is like 2006, I want to say. When did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang come out? Oh, five, I believe. Okay. Um, because, yeah, I think he's only um, one in. I'm actually looking it up as we talk. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Oh, no. No, he's not even one in Iron Man's the next year. So Did he, after those movies hit, has he done anything that wasn't trash? Like, was this his last good movie? That was actually, I wanted to bring that up with you. Because yeah. I'm glad we're both not MCU guys. <laughs> yeah. Because I had that thought too, immediately after the whole like, oh, sweet, here's Iron Man, Hulk, and fucking Mysterio. I started thinking because um, Gyllenhaal has obviously mm-hmm. had a string of great performances. Yeah. Uh, he like, continued to, to be like an art guy mm-hmm. while also balancing it, like being in these kind of big movies. Because like, I think he's one of the, the most interesting performers we've ever had because he got burned so early on trying to be a blockbuster star and shit like Prince of Persia. Yeah. That like he was just like, fuck it, I'm just gonna be an artist. And you still have him. He's also only done like one MCU movie, right? He wasn't yeah, that he only came out recently too, I think. Yeah. So but I mean he's done bigger stuff. Like even like Duncan Jones's source code is mm-hmm. kind of a bigger feeling movie. Like he's done action and genre type stuff, but then he'll also be in like Tom Ford movies. Like mm-hmm. Uh, noc- what is that? Nocturnal Animals. Uh, yes. 
and then like Nightcrawler, which I mean, for my money is like that movie ruled. Great movies of the last like 10, 15 years. Yeah. Um, and then real weird to kind of stay on Nightcrawler is um, uh, Velvet Budsaw. He I haven't seen that. that yet. Oh, really? Yeah. You want to talk about a bizarre Gyllenhaal performance. Woo! I need to see it. Damn. It's, it's not a great film, mm-hmm. but it's interesting enough to watch because everybody's so keyed up to like 13. I saw a preview of it and he looked fucking nuts. Yeah, he's he's doing some weird shit in that. But like he's, I guess, you know, to that point is that he's always been a guy who's just stuck with being an artist, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and even on bigger stuff, like, like I guess something more genre-y would be like, uh, what's his name? Villeneuve's Prisoners, mm-hmm. which was still a three-hour fucking, like, opus. <laughs> yeah, he's not doing shitty-ass family movies about talking animals, I guess. Yeah. It's pretty much, I mean, I haven't looked at it. Like, what else has Downey done since Zodiac came out? Well... Is Sherlock Holmes before or after? That's after, right? I think so. And I, yeah. I didn't like that movie. And those movies suck. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> you know, the MCU movies, I, I appreciate, I think there's something interesting about Downey is because he always was a very strange performer, like mm-hmm. going back to even stuff like being in like Rodney Dangerfield's like back to school. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's always been a weird guy. Or, like, did you ever see Less Than Zero? Like, the Brett Easton Ellis yeah. adaptation with him and Andrew McCarthy? A while ago. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of right on the verge of him getting addicted to uh, cocaine and mm-hmm. everything. Um, and plus, I mean, he's in one of my favorite movies of all time. Also with the uh, MCU guy, fucking Wendell Boys with Tobey oh, Maguire. Yeah. That oh. movie rules, and he's so good in it. Yeah. But there's another great example, like, and even in like, uh, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, he's ter- like tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chaplin, which is kind of a a weird uh, failure from my point of view. I don't think it quite works, but he's quite good as Charlie Chaplin. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's right at the end of Coralco's run, like after they did. Basic Instinct and, okay. and everything. It was one of their yeah. last things, I think, before, right before Cutthroat Island, or maybe right after. It's right, it's right in that time period where the the company was failing, so they threw it all into basically this prestige movie with Robert Downey Jr. as Charlie Chaplin, and he's great in it. Mm-hmm. The movie itself is just kind of your standard biopic nonsense, but like. It's fun to watch him. And then he kind of goes into his weird wilderness period where he struggled with all of his, his addictions, let's say. Yeah. But to your point, I had the same thought. Is this Robert Downey Jr.'s last like, great bit of like acting? You know? Yeah, I mean, what came out last year? The fucking Doolittle movie yeah. that he did? I mean, that's embarrassing. Yeah. So, I mean... Uh, and, you know, I admire his, where I was kind of going with it is I admire a dude who like went through all that and then bounced back. And now is basically one of the biggest movie stars on the planet. Like he makes yeah. much money per picture because of those MCU films and being Tony Stark. Yeah. Um, 
so I admire that part of it. But I mean, like, I, I I'm, don't find his Tony Stark stuff to be any kind of great actorly revelation. No. Even in the the Shane Black one, which I think is pretty watchable, I don't think he's that impressive, like acting in it. Yeah, he's he's fun. I don't. I'm one of the few people though that don't particularly like Iron Man three. Like I think it's, it's okay, okay, but I feel like it's. Uh, I don't know. It's the same way that I feel about Guardians of the Galaxy is that yeah. the ones that everybody kind of holds up and they're like, but this is when they let an actual filmmaker make it and they make it their way. And I'm like, well, not really. Like, like let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> they're still making what the MCU wants. Yes. But I'm, I'm looking up Downey's filmography kind of as we're talking here. And, uh-huh. uh, Doolittle, Avengers, Spider-Man. Oh, no, that doesn't count. The judge. The fuck is the judge? Exactly. That's like the only real dramatic per- one. And I believe that's the one that Dennis Dukin? The guy, no, David Dobkin. The guy who makes all those comedic movies. Like, I believe David Dobkin made Wedding Crashers and stuff. It was like his weird, like, stab at making almost like a prestige picture with, like, okay. where Robert Duvall is like an aging judge and, like, uh, if I remember correctly, I saw this movie once it's, mm-hmm. and it's the judge for fuck's sake. Um, so it kind of <laughs> went in one ear and out the other. I believe Robert Downey Jr. plays his son after he gets like Alzheimer's or some shit and comes up. Um, you know what? We are forgetting one movie and okay. one iconic Downey performance that might be the best bit of acting after Zodiac and oh, that's Topic Thunder. As you were talking, it came to my head. Yeah, he's yeah. he's really good in that movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if you could make that movie now. <laughs> <laughs> didn't that? Didn't they try to erase that movie from a history like last year? Did they try? Was that one of the ones that they tried to to like kick off of Netflix or something? I don't think anyone officially did anything, but it was the talk of social media for a few days when the teenagers discovered the movie existed. I know. You know what? After this this call, I might jump off and watch Tropic Thunder tonight yeah. just to revisit it. Because, man, Kirk Lazarus is one of the great weird performances <laughs> of all time when he, he's just doing a thing. And I remember seeing that movie in the theaters and just being like, what the fuck am I even watching right now? I mean... You're laughing just remembering about having watched the movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also think about all the people that are in that movie that are doing bizarre work. Like you have him playing a guy who dyes his skin black to play a black guy, which uh, we're not going to get away with that anytime soon. You have Tom Cruise going like full tilt. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise is insane in that movie. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Wasn't it? It, his idea to have the suit on i believe so yeah do you know what's a weird memory that i'll always have is one of the last times that i think i ever watched the mtv music awards when tom cruise was on it in his he comes on in character and does the full dance to like the ludicrous song like live and i remember just being like you know what I don't give a fuck how crazy Tom Cruise is. Like, I just love this guy. I will always love this guy. (laughs) 
I am a huge Tom Cruise fan. I don't give a shit about any of his Scientology stuff, and that's what I've told man. I think his movies look really good. Yeah, like he's always been one of my favorite, if not like, I don't know if he's my favorite movie star because I think Burt Reynolds will always be my favorite like all-time movie star, but Tom Cruise, yeah. I mean, he's at least top three. Yeah, I mean, anything he's in, basically, it's going to be a pretty good time, probably. Yeah, and you know he's going to commit to everything. Like, yeah. there's, no, there's no going half speed with Tom Cruise. Like, he's going to kill himself making that movie. I <laughs> honestly believe when we find out he dies, it's going to be because of a stunt gone wrong. That yeah. guy is nuts. That is how he is going to die. Yeah, a plane's going to fall on him or something. Yeah. It's going to be It's going to be dark. But he will die on screen. <laughs> nah, it'll be a good movie, probably. Yeah, you know what? Then we're gonna wonder if it's like there's gonna be like a QAnon conspiracy after that about like did he actually die? Like was yeah. that just actually CGI Tom Cruise and he just ascended to the next plane of Scientology? Tom Cruise died a decade ago, but we just used like CGI. Yeah, I mean, would we know any more at this point? Tom Cruise is actually Joe Biden. Yeah, Tom Tom Cruise is Q. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but Ruffalo here's, was he was he ever like a big movie movie still? Not really, like because like I always remember the first movie I ever remember, like really being attracted to like Ruffalo as like a performer is the, the Kenneth Lonergan movie. Uh, you can count on me where he played okay. Laura Linney's kind of like fucked up brother. I think he was even nominated for Academy award for that. But then like, you know, just throughout the years, he's always been this reliable kind of weirdo. Yeah. And, but Zodiac is like one of his absolute best performances. And maybe the closest we get outside of like Hulk and, Bruce Banner, obviously, to where, like, he's an actual movie star on screen because yeah. he, he has that kind of charisma and gravitas the entire time. Yeah, like, I'm looking at his Wikipedia now because I can't think of anything he's been in. I forgot who was in Eternal Sunshine of the Spot was mine. He exactly. was one of those uh, uh, employees, and that, he was pretty good in that. And he was in a movie, I just shut it down without looking, but he was in a movie recently I thought was pretty good that has almost similar vibes to Zodiac, but isn't any of as good. Uh, I can't think of the title, but he plays like a loyal investigating some corrupt-ass company poisoning a town. Dark Waters. Yeah, that was pretty uh, good. Yeah, the, um, what's his name, Todd Haynes movie. Yeah, that from like a year or two ago. Yeah, that movie. You want to talk about a great procedural and yeah. how it's all about? Because what I really liked about what about Dark Waters was um, the fact that they don't, they kind of don't win. Like they mm -hmm. do win, but the whole point of it is almost showing you how long we're like in the traditional movie, like the Aaron Brockovich version of it is that it's all about like they win and the townspeople get to see that they win. And it's this big triumphant moment. We're like in dark waters. It's all about, well, this is how long it takes to do a lawsuit like this. And it stretches out over long periods of time. And like half the people that you're defending are going to fucking die while you're doing yeah. it. And it's all about how driven you are as a person 
to basically get the right thing done. Like I like how it's it's real bleak in that way. Yeah, that was a good ass movie. I uh, I don't think anyone watched it though. <laughs> but uh, another great one. I mean that you know as a Ruffalo spotlight. Like, while we're on the yes. kind of the, the newspaper man movies, like Spotlight's one of the great movies about journalism. Yeah, like, I maybe he should just only be in movies while he's in an office reading documents. <laughs> That's really <where he> shines. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, and he's great in that because he's just like, like totally like committed to just playing that guy who to where like the story is all that matters. He has yeah. nothing else, you know? And he obviously has like the big moment in that, that movie where he's like, they were doing it to kids like the entire time. And you're like, Oh shit. Ruffalo's going for it, man. But like, Not even the line he's supposed to say, he's just began shrouding it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's to your point, I guess the last big one, I mean, he was in those weird magic movies. What were they called? Now you see me. I did not watch those. <laughs> they're, they're not great. They're kind of fun. But yeah, even looking at his IMDb, Foxcatcher, not a fun movie to sit through. I don't know what that is. The <laughs> one uh, from the guy who made Moneyball. Okay. Um, where it's about how he and uh, Channing Tatum are like the, the wrestling. Uh, that one slipped by me. I have, I have no idea what that movie is. Oh, yeah. Steve Carell plays John DuPont. Who, okay. It's about how he murders one of them after oh, recruiting them to be his like gold medalist. Oh, if you've never seen Foxcatcher, it's pretty Kubrick. fucking good. Yeah, it's, it's straight up Kubrickian. Like okay. it, it's just about this crazy guy, this crazy rich guy, who essentially recruits these two wrestlers to come in and try to win him personally a gold medal in the Olympics and push okay. it like the absolute limit. But it ends in horrible murder. Hell yes. Like, yeah, it's it's not a pleasant movie to sit through. Which is the opposite of Zodiac, which begins that way, but yeah. does not <laughs> end that way. <laughs> well, if you want to see one of the strangest Steve Carell uh, performances, because this was when, like, Carell was really going for, like, an Oscar, because he's wearing this giant prosthetic nose and shit, and, like, playing old okay. man like crazy ass like basically this guy who's like rotting away in his mansion kind of like daniel day lewis at the end of there will be blood yeah um, yeah winning this gold medal is all that matters to him at this point like it's it's a strange strange icy movie i'm gonna seek that out okay yeah i don't know how i missed it but you know a thousand movies will release a day it seems well they used to be at least yeah one well, other good one that i was like too is i mean shutter island He's pretty. Yeah. Who is he in that? Is he his uh, like his his friend? His film? Well, I guess not to spoil it for those of you who in the audience who have not seen Shutter Island, but he's Leo's partner. Who turns out when they reveal it's all like this grand role playing thing. Yeah, he turns out to be his doctor. Actually, that's right. Along with like Kingsley's like experimental technique to try and like cure him well not cure him but make him confront his kind of past and mental illness and stuff i've always liked that movie except feel like the twist on it i don't know i don't think it sits right with me i don't think it makes sense yeah at all but i like it emotionally if that makes okay. sense like i love it does. I, I really like the ending of it to where like he decides to to have a lobotomy because i just find it so intensely sad 
Like it's a guy mm-hmm. realizing that he can't be fixed in a way yeah. and just going it's, home. It's a good movie to watch, but maybe not a good movie to think too much about after it finishes. Yeah. It's totally yeah. Scorsese doing weird gun for hire work and like just layering on this this like old school Val Luton and Hammer Horror and like yeah. stuff and like oh man. I I like it a lot, but yeah, it's if somebody's like, I don't like the ending, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it looks it looks great and it it feels pretty good for most yeah. of the movie. Yeah. It's uh it's a it, the, the end is is weird though. But I I like it, man. I like I just like everything Leo and, and Martin Scorsese. Yeah. So that's it's always it, a good time. Yeah, except for Gangs of New York. It's the only one I don't like. I haven't finished it. <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> and I just don't give a shit for most of the time. I've what? tried many times, but I always just give up. Oh, man. But uh, so to kind of close out the episode here, I do want to ask, where does this rank for Fincher with you? Oh, it's the top spot. It's my it's my favorite movie of all time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was your favorite movie of all time. Yeah, I I watch it nonstop. I when I like write something, I think I want to make it as good as fucking Zodiac. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. So it's top. What about you? Um, I flip flop between this and social network okay that's that's I, fine social network is amazing like i and i even i rewatched seven for the first time in years recently and i think that's a masterpiece i mean not to go all like film twitter bro or whatever mm-hmm. but like let's face it like fincher's like one of the if not the best American filmmaker kind of working class. Um, Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for like, you know, basically Scorsese still being alive (laughs) uh, and making movies, like, because like, I I don't even rank De Palma ahead of him anymore. Like De Palma is my favorite filmmaker of all time, but I don't rank him ahead of uh, Fincher anymore just because De Palma doesn't make movies anymore, you know? And it's like, is he still my favorite? Do I still think he's the best? Yeah, sure. But he doesn't count anymore because it's like it's like ranking Carpenter now. It's like, well, Carpenter has What's the point? Yeah. So, like, out I... of active dudes, like, Fincher is right there with Scorsese. Like, nobody makes movies the way that he does. Like, I'm trying to think about, like, all of his movies without looking at it. And I think the only one I haven't seen is Aliens. Oh, Alien 3? Yeah, if that's the one he made. I've only seen the original Alien. I've only seen the original. I haven't seen any of the sequels. Oh, man. Are you in for a treat? I know I need to. I know I'm going to enjoy them. They all just something I'm going to get to eventually. But yeah, I haven't seen them. And uh, Alien, I think you really, really like... I mean, I think you'll like all of them... um, up through three yeah because i mean you have aliens which is cameron just going full tilt cameron yeah and three 
even though three, you know, notoriously was taken away from Fincher. Yeah. He's such a distinct artist that like you watch it and you're like, oh, well, only one guy could have done this. Like, because gotcha. it still has this bleak, nihilistic, like very unpleasant, like where Alien's a great haunted house movie in outer space. You know? <laughs> okay. uh, and Aliens is just a pure like inject it into my veins like kind of adrenaline rush yeah like, those movies are fun to sit through alien 3 is miserable <laughs> like, <laughs> like it, it has no it does not want you to have fun with it one bit and i'm like yeah that's fincher so he's just like i'm gonna make the most miserable fucking uh, alien movie out there but um i think you would like it okay one so, of these days i want to just like wake up but 8 a.m. and just watch all three of them back to back. Yeah. I think that's the way to go. Do you like Dragon Tattoo? I saw it once and have vague memories of it. The same thing with Panic Room. I need to uh, revisit both of those. Yeah. It was weird for me with Mank as that was the first David Fincher movie I didn't see in the theater. Yeah. What did you think of it? I like it. It's fine. I, you know, it's towards the bottom of his list, but like, again, he's such an interesting technician that like, even though nothing really, I, none of the story or anything really resonated with me. Like I kind of got while he was making it and it still has that kind of bitter Hollywood pill about it. But like you watch it and you're like, fuck man, this is so well put together that I, I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> you have, yeah you just have to like enjoy how it looks and sounds yeah and it looks and sounds unlike anything out there yeah it's, no one's making movies like that yeah and it's it he kind of like how scorsese took uh all of netflix's money to make the irishman because nobody yeah. else would let him like this is a total like oh you'll give me all this money to make this black and white movie about the screenwriter citizen <laughs> Sure. (laughs) I mean, who else was going to let him make that? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, um, yeah, Dragon Tattoo is the only one of his that I need to revisit because I've never liked it. And Mm -hmm. I like you, I only watched it once. I watched it on my birthday, whatever year that was that it came out. And I was just like, I fucking don't like this. Like this Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> what, about, uh, what about Panic Room? How's that? How's that? I, I saw it when it came out, but I was a kid. And I don't remember anything about it. I like it. it. I like yeah. it a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's just doing a thing. It's a total mm-hmm. like style exercise of like, kind of like what you're talking about with your, your uh, movie that you just worked on. You could totally see that he was like, okay, so it's a movie in one apartment mm-hmm. with a panic room. And these guys are trying to get in and this woman is trying to keep them out with her daughter. Boom. Yeah. I'm just going to shoot the shit out of it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> like, I, uh, there's not much else to it, you know? I am a huge fan of uh, Mindhandle. And I, oh. I, wonder if, I wonder if like, I don't mean, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I guess it feels really much like a Zodiac TV show. It's like, as yeah. close we would ever get it has the same vibe i mean i have the same happiness as i watch that show as i do with zodiac well it's the same kind of idiosyncrasy right Mm -hmm. where it's like with zodiac 
kind of like what you're saying is that he's like, okay, here's the murders, but I don't give a shit really about that. Like I'm going to film these horror scenes and I'm going to make them as horrific as possible because I mean, like Donovan music cue, like whenever I hear that song in like a restaurant or something, I suddenly just like get a shiver down my spine. I'm like, oh my God. Like, but the rest of the movie, he's just, all he cares about is process. And it's like, how how do we make this story and how do these guys get obsessed? But with Mindhunter, it's kind of the same exact thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a movie about, or a show in this case, about serial killers. You don't see any murder. Right, exactly. It's it's like, what do you, how, how do these guys like tick? And how, what's the process in like, trying to figure out how their minds work and like to me that's fascinating yeah and how what does it do to somebody who spends all of the time obsessing over these guys as well yeah. same thing and like yeah like thinking about zodiac now all the killings really much feel like he's just trying to get those like out of the way so he can move on to something he's actually interested in i mean in zodiac we don't even see the initial killing that is something that happened like six months before the movie begins. Yeah. Which is such an interesting choice too. Yeah. It's like, and I think what's also fascinating about that, that opening murder, the shooting that's all set to Donovan and everything is that it almost feels confrontational in a weird way. In, in like, he stylizes it. He shows you that the gun muzzle go off and like the, it he cuts to the quick slow-mo as like the bullets going through his head and stuff. But then he just cuts back to that wide shot where the guy's basically begging for his life and, and crawling into the back seat while the Zodiac just circles around and methodically just kind of shoots in. And it feels like it's confronting you as like an audience member in a weird way and being like, oh yeah, yeah, murder's cool, right? Well, here's like the stylized version versus what actually happens when somebody is killed. Yeah, think about how that could have been made by someone who was not as talented. They would have wanted you to be in the shoes of the person getting shot. The camera would have been inside the vehicle, frantic and shaking. Instead, we all know, like, it's more of a voyeuristic type of thing where we watch from the sidelines and, like, oh, there's nothing we can do to stop this. We're just going to have to watch it happen. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of like the, 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 the second killing by the lake, like, it's so matter of fact, like you say like, Oh, I'm, I'm getting it out of the way, but it's kind of like, it almost plays out like watching a police report, you know, to, because it's just like, here's this couple, they're enjoying a day, this guy approaches and he just kills them, but there's nothing stylized about it. It's just no. matter of fact, here's what happens. And even when he starts stabbing them, that's the thing that makes it so horrific mm-hmm. that there's no, there's nothing cool about it. It's just like, this is how people die. And this is how he did it. You're like, ugh. That scene, sometimes when I watch the movie, I want to just like skip over it. It's yeah. so bad. I mean, it's good, but it's, it makes me feel so bad. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, but again, it's, it feels like him sort of confronting you and being like, oh, movie violence is cool, right? Well, yeah. what it's like. <laughs> think, think again. Different. Yeah. But it's also, um, it, it is interesting to kind of compare it. I'm glad that you brought up Mindhunter because like one of the things that I love about Mindhunter and I'm so fucking mad that we're not going to get another season of it mm-hmm. is like 
even though he spends all this time with Jonathan Groff and um, Holt McCallany, you know, as they uh, kind of go across the country and, and develop this system for interviewing killers and stuff, you know, it tracks the rise of the BTK of killer in these weird little intro, like almost like bookended snippets the entire time. Yeah. But, man, those scenes again, to go back to your idea of like, this is like the, the Zodiac TV show is those are the parts that feel like police reports to me or like excerpts from the books that these guys would essentially eventually write mm-hmm. uh, to where it's like, and this is how he prepared for it. And this is how he like his mind kind of built to it to finally actually doing it. And then like his wife walking in on him, like choking himself with the mask and shit. Who that among is, us has, Oh yeah. Yeah. That is upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, I am so bummed, Ray, because like, didn't he say he had a five season plan? I mean, it was obviously building to something. Yeah. And now we won't know unless it happens, but I don't think it is. I don't know if it was officially canceled or not. Well, the story was that apparently he was just felt burnt out on it. Mm-hmm. Apparently. Because they they shot it all in Pittsburgh, and like apparently, right? They wrote all of season two. And to go, actually, this is interesting to kind of parallel it with your point about how Zodiac's sort of like the creative process is that they literally wrote all of season two, got up to shooting, and he realized he didn't like it, so he stopped production, and they wrote the entire thing from scratch. Wow. But it extended their stay in Pittsburgh to where like they were in Pittsburgh for like almost like a year and a half, like doing this show because it took so long after he scrapped everything, the first run, but kind of like what you're saying is that you, you get all the way through with like the dead ends and Zodiac and stuff and how that parallels like creating something is that you get to a certain point and you just hit a dead end and you're like, well, fuck this. Like that is what he did. He was like, yeah. Like <laughs> But he did it on a giant multi-million dollar Netflix series. That probably made many people mad. (laughs) You want to, yeah, I was going to say, imagine what kind of confidence you have to have as just like an individual to go to Netflix and be like, yeah, yeah, I get it. Like this is going to cost like $60 million, but I don't give a fuck. Like I'm starting over. And then just being like, what? <laughs> yeah, like I was on that movie set, and I wasn't involved in anything. But I was, I felt bad if I was late. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm not even useful right now. But I, I apologize for getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Fincher was like, "Fuck this! I don't like it. Give me more money." <laughs> well, I guess that's what you can do when you become someone like David Fincher. Yeah, right. What a life. Anyway, thank you so much, Max. This has been so much fun. Zodiac does rule. I can't wait to see your movie. And uh, we're going to have to have you back on again. All right. Next season. We can come on and maybe the movie will be out and we can just trash it. Yeah. I could be like, Max, you fucked it up. You could uh, ask me the question many producers uh, were really confused about, which was, how come the bathroom opens to the outside instead of the inside? 
<laughs> do, you know, do you know how many times I had to fucking explain that in meetings? Yeah. Well, I believe it because I try to, I've tried to explain this to like people, you know, folks who like aren't in any way involved or like immersed in like movies or production or something in that. Cause they'll talk about, you know, something as simple as like voiceover in a mm-hmm. movie. And they'll be like, ah, oh, I don't like the voiceover in that. And you'll be like, well, yeah, because that was obviously like somebody at the studio was like, well, we need somebody to explain why the car did that. Yeah. And it's like, but those are the types of weird details that like producers and, and like money dudes like get hung up on is they'll be like, well, why the fuck does the bathroom door open that way? And you're like, shut up. I don't care. Like, <laughs> bathrooms can open that way behind me on this zoom call is a bathroom that opens to the outside they exist leave me alone yeah i didn't invent this (laughs) and even if i did it's the the best it's like that old john ford story uh to where i can't remember what western he was shooting but there was a reporter on what like basically watching a scene and he was staging a scene where a uh, war party of native americans were Mm -hmm. going to to be charging these cowboys and these cowboys were hunkered down and the reporter went to john ford and went well why don't they just shoot the horses and john ford looks at him and goes well because there won't be a movie then And I mean, yeah, that's the answer. Do you want the movie to exist? Or do you want to live in shitty realism? Exactly. So, but anyway, again, yeah. Max, thank you so much. This has been great. Absolutely. We'll see you in season two when uh, we need to do something is out. And All right. I will trash it. Hell yes. I can't wait. Bye. All right. See you, man. <laughs>